0: I believe I'm yeah. This is the Payback Time Podcast, where we interview driven individuals who have achieved or are well on their way to achieving financial freedom. We break down the steps required to generate leveraged income, including but not limited to stock investing, online business, traditional business, and real estate. Each episode breaks down the mistakes made, victories achieved, and the overall journey that led them to where they are today. Sean Tepper is your host, and here is today's episode. My next guest is well on her way to early retirement. She has a creative agency. We're going to be talking about that a little bit and why it's so important to find a niche customer audience. She also owns real estate, and she's a self-directed investor. Please welcome Leanne Presley. Hey, Leanne. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. Thanks, Sean. Happy to be on the show today.
0: Yes, thank you. So I like to start by laying things out on a timeline. And what I'd like to do is let's start with when you founded Stitchcraft and then let's work in reverse a little bit to discover what you were doing previously. So when did you found this company?
1: I founded my marketing agency, which is Stitchcraft Marketing. Around 2009, uh, I had... Been sort of at the bottom of the housing crash with another job that I was doing on commission. And I decided I needed something new. So in uh, the middle of the recession, I decided to offer some marketing services to a few clients that I had been working with previously. And then that burgeoned into the agency that I have today.
0: Okay. Yeah, I was looking on your LinkedIn. It looked like you had an agency that served. uh, It wasn't as specific with the niche. It was a little more broad. Was that correct?
1: No, it was always a niche agency. I was always in the craft space. We primarily serve uh, the what I call the fiber and fabric community. We also have a couple other crafting companies. Um, but I think what you're referring to is I had a different name. It was called the wool wide web and yep. we did a, a little bit more website work at that time. Um, but we rebranded because I felt like stitch craft marketing was really a more accurate description of the services that we were offering.
0: Sure. Gotcha. Okay. So you were on commission and in a tough economy. Did you really end up in a position where, hey, I could continue trying to do this or I could go ahead and start an agency? In other words, you didn't have a whole lot of uh, like a safety net, like somebody who does if they're working a full-time job.
1: The job that I had in 2008, I was working for for a publishing company called Interweave Press and I was on commission only contract work so if i sold something which was at the time advertising then i made money and so being a contractor you know i could kind of play around with different models and structures of working so when 2008 hit as you can imagine nobody was buying print ads you know marketing was the first thing people were cutting and so my income dropped from you know being healthy and growing to barely paying paying the mortgage And so I had a few really great clients that I considered friends. And so I said to them, hey, um, you know, what would you think about me doing your newsletter for whatever you're willing to pay me? Uh, So for actually about three months, I offered my services for free and, I say for free, but I said to my clients, you pay me what you think it's worth. And as it turns out, they paid me more than what I was going to price the service for. Uh, And then again, that kind of launched the whole thing. Oh, my gosh, maybe I can actually do this for real for more clients. And then, you know, slowly it sort of grew into more of an agency model.
0: Sure. So during the recession or any recession, that's a great time to start a business. And a lot of people, you've got two options. You can either continue doing what you're doing or you can make that jump. And and your leap wasn't very big because your income had dropped so much. So it it seemed like the right path forward. So you chose, sounds like you chose a wise direction, get into a niche instead of serving everybody, right? Right. Oh, yeah. And And when you worked with these customers for free, I assume one of the objectives there was obviously provide great service, but also try to obtain some case studies. Was that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to be able to go to the next client and say, oh, I had just worked with so-and-so who was a well-known name in the industry that I serve. uh, And that did impact uh, my ability to get other prospects on board, uh, because I was building trust and that credibility. And yeah, it worked well to offer the service for free for a while.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And starting out, what were some of the challenges you faced?
1: In starting the business, I was doing everything myself, I would say is one of the first challenges, which in hindsight, I think was great. And I wouldn't change it. Because I do think that an entrepreneur needs to wear all the hats and know all the hats. I don't think Uh, At least in my case, I was good at wearing all the hats, you know, I wasn't so great at the accounting piece and the bookkeeping piece and, you know, some of the what I call in the trenches, social media posting, because I don't like being on Twitter all day long. Um, So I was able to do all the jobs and identify the things that I eventually did want to outsource. So I would say that was one of the challenges was just sort of figuring that piece out. What were the things I was really good at and that I wanted to retain for myself? And what were the things that I needed help with? And then I could kind of go out and find those team members to, you know, fill those seats on the bus, as it were, to do that. Sure,
0: sure. Let's continue on the timeline here, because making that transition from doing everything, which is pretty common, (laughs) to bringing on people to outsource that or outsource it to other companies or other contractors. How long did that take until you could find help to um, take some of the some of the labor off your plate?
1: Mm. It was pretty quick. I had hired one other person that I found on a platform. It's a website specific to my industry. I posted a job there that I was looking for somebody to help with social media posting uh, because that was one of the first services that I offered and that we still offer today and the way that i went about it was hiring them as a contractor i gave them certain contract work they did that social media posting for the clients Uh, and then as the agency grew and i had more clients i just brought on more people so i just replicated that same model and right now we have three full-time employees And we do a lot more than just social posting, but that's kind of how it started in the early days was just with contractors and only bringing on people as I had work to give them.
0: Nice. Impressive. Sounds like you've you've got operations figured out pretty well in the agency world. Right. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about some of the services you offer. So you were offering websites in the beginning, you said. Was that correct? Mm
1: Yeah, yeah babe, way back in the early aughts, I was very early on in website development and design. I actually had a virtual hosting business. As I mentioned, I, I'm kind of a serial entrepreneur, so I've had other businesses before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, virtual hosting was something I offered in 2002, you know, three, and uh, just really easy website design. And I was just doing that on my own. So when I started the agency, that just seemed like a natural fit as one of the services that I was offering. Um, But as you know, website design and development evolved so quickly that it wasn't very long before my skills were obsolete. Uh, And so then I just continued to stay in the social media space, which is uh, where I was more comfortable. And now I outsource website design and development to uh, another contractor, actually a guy that I've worked with since then. Uh, So 20 plus years, I've worked with him exclusively. Uh, But now we we do offer that, but it's outsourced.
0: Gotcha. Okay. So website, social media, what other services Mm -hmm. do you provide?
1: I would say the bulk of the service we provide is in a social media space. So As you said before, I'm in a niche industry, so I'm only serving craft companies. And then within that, I have sort of a marketing niche, so it's a double niche. Uh, Mm -hmm. We do strategy, planning, and execution. So a client will come to us and we'll do uh, all of their social media for them. We'll manage their Facebook page, Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Ravelry, all of that. We also do newsletters, blogging. We'll do website design and development. We do some branding, like re, you know, redesigning logos, for example, um, mm-hmm. and we do straight consulting, a lot of um, marketing research, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but sure. for for the most part, it's in the in a social space.
0: And could you give me like a percentage <laughs> breakdown between the social media, and websites, and maybe one or two other services? How does that split between each other? Mm-hmm.
1: I'd say it's about 90% social media strategy and execution. So about 90% of our clients all have a regular strategy plan, a regular monthly check-in meeting where we discuss what their plan is going to be. And then we have a regular retainer-based program, something that we're doing for them every single month, which we determine through some research and, and other exercises at the beginning of the relationship. Uh, so for most of them, we're posting on those social channels. And then for some of them, we might be doing content creation like blogging, sure. where we're writing blogs, creating video, writing a newsletter. Um, and to me that's kind of all folded into a social media offering. Um, so about 90% of our clients have some form of those three things mm-hmm. newsletter blogging, content creation. And, and it's rolled into social. I'd say got about it. 5% of people come to us and they'll do website design and development. And that's more of a one and done thing. Their, their website's terrible. Hey, help me. You got to fix it. That takes three, sure. six months. And then that's over. Um, yeah. And consulting is kind of the same thing. People onboard just to get their feet wet, figure things out. And then they'll stay with us about six months to a year. And then they are they feel like you know they've learned what they need to do. And they're often running on their own business. So.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And I'm going to ask some questions here that relate to the agency uh, pricing structure. I owned an agency from 2006 to 2010. Mostly did websites. So it was all project-based work. Mm-hmm. I assume your website work, that's project-based, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. And usually fixed bid, it's not a... Hourly rate. Right. Yeah. Now with the social media, I assume you can put people on a monthly plan. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. You did mention yeah. retainer. <clears throat> yeah. Most of the revenue that we generate for the agency is on a recurring revenue basis. Yes. So it's a, it's a set fee that's predetermined that that client sticks with for, you know, in per- per- perpetuity sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, once a year, at least at the minimum, we take a look at what their uh, account is and if they need tweaks on something that price might go up or down, you know, but generally speaking, it's the same fee every single month and it continues on in perpetuity. So
0: great, great. So in, in the software as a service model, is so popular these days, think about like Netflix or whatever your cell phone bill is or yeah. any monthly fee. So I, I assume that makes it a lot easier for the customer to know, like, hey, the budget is this much per month. Yeah. And we know the next month and the month after we are paying the same thing. So there's mm-hmm. no surprises, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Can you give us a range on the low end to the high end? What do you usually charge per month?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I would say the, the price, of course, depends on how big the company is. Uh, at the very high end, we have, you know, multinational corporations that are paying um, like $12,000 a month for a certain okay. set of services. And then I have, uh, we've served all the way down to small mom and pop yarn shops, you know, just your neighborhood fabric store or your yarn sh- store. And they might might have a much, much smaller program that might be $750
0: a month. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That gives me a great ballpark. Okay. All right. And when you sell something like this, you mentioned earlier, you don't really like being in the weeds in the trenches is I think how you worded it. Right. So yeah. you said you have three employees full time. Right. Are they doing a lot of that work, like the social media posting and, mm-hmm. and the photos on social media, all that good stuff?
1: Yeah, the way that I structure it is a little different than other agencies. Um, I know other agencies might have like a copywriting department and a media department and, you know, different areas, which I would call a beehive model. Uh, The work comes into the agency and then you have certain bees that specialize in certain pieces of the project. Well, we don't do it like that. Uh, We have more of a silo structure where when you come into the agency as a client, you're assigned to an account manager that's sort of a jack of all trades. And she, will do the majority of the work for your account and she just stays in your silo uh focused on your business and knows every moving part about your account Uh, now we do have certain folks like i have one gal on the team that's facebook advertising certified so if you are a client that needs facebook ads we'll bring her in and she'll do that one little piece of it but for the most part it's a silo structure uh, and so all of our employees are skilled at doing all of, you know, all of those pieces. So, which is why, you know, we really focus on just the social media piece because we can go really deep into that. And we're really a master of our best practices in social media. Um, There was a time that we were trying to be all things for all people. And that really didn't work because we were constantly on the treadmill of trying to learn the learning curve, trying to defeat the learning curve. You know, a client would come to us and say, hey, can you do some, you know, XYZ wacky project. And we'd be like, of course we can. Mm-hmm. You know, and it would be months and months of spinning our wheels trying to figure out how to reduce that result for a client. Uh, and once we realized that we really needed to just hyper focus on our niche service within our niche industry, then things really got going. And it was a much more successful model for us.
0: Sure. It's uh, the whole rule be great at one thing, not good at multiple things, right? Exactly.
1: Yeah. That's good,
0: Sean. Yep. Yeah. Let's talk about how you measure success with your customers. Because I assume if they're staying with you in perpetuity, you're probably presenting certain results to them. What are some of those metrics? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, w- each client has their own expectation about how they define success. And so we try to start there with each client. Um, but for the most part, you know, everybody wants sales. You know, the, the dollar speaks louder than anything. And, and so the results for them are: if I spend a dollar with Stitchcraft Marketing, can you produce $3 in return? So our, our metrics are really based along those lines. Can we draw a line from, you know, a Facebook post that we put out there to selling something, for example, sure. uh, a sale in the cart. So that's probably the strongest KPI that we have for clients. Um, but sometimes it's not so easy to draw that line. You know, we live in an omni-channel world right now, where you might see a billboard, and you might see a sticker on the back of a car, and you might hear a radio ad, and then you see a Facebook post. And so, was it the Facebook post that really triggered the sale, or was it all the other, uh, you know, omni-media presence that you saw as a consumer to result in that sale? So when you have a client that says, well, I paid you for billboards, but the only thing that was really working was Facebook ads. You know, I have to come back to them and say, well, you know, that might not necessarily be true. Um, so I think it's more challenging with some of our B2B clients, especially because the sale happens in the yarn shop and not at that B level, not the business, the business vendor level. So some of those clients are a little bit harder to, uh, put in a KPI, um, but I think we've educated them over time and the things that we look at are um, you know, branding recognition, growth in social channels, rates of engagement, you know, some of those other metrics that uh, they're, they're happy with. And they can see the sales coming in through the shops, so they're happy with that.
0: Let's take a quick commercial break. Have you ever lost money in the stock market? Have you ever listened to someone you know, heard a comment online, or tried to follow a trend and still ended up losing money? If so, you're not alone. A lot of people lose money in the stock market because they make decisions based on emotions. What if you could completely remove emotions from investing? What if you could make consistent returns in the stock market based solely on logic? And what if there's a software that handled that logic for you? I would like to introduce Ticker. Ticker makes investing easier, smarter, and faster. Before Ticker launched, it was backtested through the 2008 recession. Here are the surprising results. In 2008, the market dropped by 38%. Ticker was up 24%. In 2009, the market went up by 23%. Ticker was up 72%. And in 2010, the market went up by 12%. Ticker was up 96%. Ticker allows you to find great investments before they become mainstream news. It helps you understand when to buy and when to sell. And it clearly defines why a stock is a great investment, providing you with the confidence to make a great decision. Get started today with a free trial. Visit ticker.pro. That's T-Y-K-R dot pro. Again, ticker pro. I want to make a transition here over to real estate. Yeah. So when did you first start investing in real estate?
1: Well, I would say my first investment is like most people which is that you're investing in your primary residence Um, Mm -hmm. we started young i was probably 26 27 when we bought our first house Uh, and that was in the town that i live in now just jumped right in right away with uh, our first purchase and and then after that we just acquired other real estate rental properties Uh, we have one duplex and uh, a single family home right now. Uh, At the peak, we had seven properties, but we've since scaled back a little bit. Um, But every couple of years, I would just save, save, save to try to get that down payment. Sometimes I would leverage other money to get that down payment. Uh, I'm lucky enough to live in a very uh, growth oriented community where just real estate's gone up and up and up and up. Uh, so we've gotten really lucky that way, but my very first purchase was just the primary residence that we first lived in.
0: Right. And that's, that's what I typically hear with real estate investing is you have your first home because when you go for the loan on the second property, your current resident is collateral. Is
1: that mm-hmm. correct? Correct. Yep.
0: Right. Absolutely. And you're putting 20% down, is mm-hmm. it on the other properties or trying yeah. to get as close to that?
1: hmm I've always done at least 20 because I never liked the idea of paying PMI insurance. So I was always trying to get a high enough um, down payment. Plus, in my market, you know, there was their balancing act between how much my mortgage payment was and what I was able to bring in for rents. So I always wanted that number to be fairly close together, either a break-even or hopefully a little bit of cash flow. Uh, mm-hmm. So I would put more money down. To ensure that the mortgage payment was low enough that it either matched or allowed for positive cash flow on the rent.
0: Smart. And what market do you live in? Are you, You're in Colorado, I mean, is that right? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in Salida, Colorado, which is a little small mountain town.
0: Got it. Okay. Where is that in relation to Denver?
1: We're about three hours south of Denver. It's in the uh, it. kind of the central Arkansas Valley mountain region.
0: Got it. I have heard real estate in Denver is just, the value is like crazy. So mm-hmm. I assume it's pretty similar in your area.
1: Yeah. And when we first moved to town, um, it, it was, a you know, a lot of boarded up businesses in the downtown area it was definitely not where it is today, which is, you know, fully developed cute little historic mountain district. I mean, when we first moved here, uh it wasn't like that at all so that's another advantage we had is jumping into a real estate market that was depressed and you know not a whole lot of people wanted to live here it was kind of a secret gem in colorado well you know we've been discovered and now everybody wants to live here uh and it's become more and more developed so real estate has just been booming
0: that's a great place to be that's awesome (laughs) Now, for the properties you have, do you have a property management company that does the maintenance for you? Do you pay a monthly fee for that?
1: No, I've never had a management company. I've always been okay. a hands-on landlord. I've always wanted to do my own applications, my own interviews. I screen all my own, all my tenants. Uh, you know, I want to be the person, you know, taking the rent check and being on top of repairs and maintenance. I I want to be hands-on on my properties. So no, I've, I've never, and also I want all the revenue. So I guess that's the other piece of it is I haven't sure. been willing to give over uh, the percentage to a property management company.
0: Sure. Do you think if you scaled up your portfolio, you would consider bringing on a management company?
1: I don't think I'm going to scale up at this point. Like I said, at the peak, we had about seven properties and you know I'm 51 right now. So we're actually uh, thinking about plateauing or consolidating some of our holdings uh, sure. at this point in our life. but. Uh, I think the only time I would ever consider a property manager is if I was traveling and I wasn't here to be able to, you know, go over and talk to a tenant or deal with a problem. Um, That's really the only time it ever appealed to me is uh, if I was, you know, out of the country for an extended time or something like that.
0: Sure. Okay. How much time do you spend per month on your properties, whether it's between managing the bills and maintaining the properties?
1: Mm-hmm. I would say when I have a turnover, uh, you know, if somebody leaves or I get a new tenant, it's probably about five to 10 hours of work in that month or in that time period. Uh, again, I'm lucky enough that in Salido the demand for rentals is extremely high. So as soon as I list a property, you know it's 24 to 48 hours before I have five or six applications that look pretty decent. So I don't have to spend a lot of extended time trying to bring in applicants. Um, and also I think that doing the hard work on the front end, trying to find a good tenant pays off in the long run because for example, in my duplex, Both of my tenants have been in there going on five years now. So there's relatively no time commitment with that. The houses are in good shape. You know, there's not a lot of maintenance issues with them. We do regular maintenance on them to ensure that they stay in that condition. Uh, And so, you know, other than a phone call from a tenant, I'd say three or four times a year for just some random something, a question or a concern. Uh, they're really hands-off. I don't really do anything.
0: What were some of the challenges you faced with owning real estate?
1: Um, I would say the people factor is the number one thing. And again, you know, I've heard nightmare stories of other landlords that if you don't choose the right people or you're not in a market where you have a large enough pool of people to choose from, kind of like the client thing we were just talking about, you know, if you're forced to take bad clients then you suffer the consequences uh, and so if, if you happen to be in a market where you can't have first choice of the kind of tenants you're looking for um, then it's a lot more problems and challenges uh, so really the only challenges I've had are with uh, tenants that I chose that ended up being poor choices
0: obviously if you bring on um, riskier tenants you could say you're going to be running into problems so you definitely plan ahead and, and kind of like with the client situation with your business is you want to bring in the right clients. Well, in this case, you want to bring in the right tenants. Then you have less issues over the long term.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think that I have learned little lessons along the way. Uh, like right now, I have a document that I called additional provisions that I give each of my tenants and it's kind of funny because there's probably about 25 things on there that I don't allow tenants to do anymore and that's because some tenant before them before them had done that thing uh, so I've learned like I said little little errors and lessons and learning opportunities sure. along the way and so now I feel like when I put a tenant in there uh, I just get you know the, the best tenants right away. And they know the rules up front and, you know, I just, I know how to behave with them and uh, they know what to expect from me. And so it's, it's just gotten easier over time being a landlord. There you go.
0: Yep. I can see that if you have a strong vetting process up front, your need for a property management company is is, definitely decreases. So Mm -hmm. um, good position to be in. Nice. Yeah. Let's take a quick commercial break. The backstory on Ticker has a not so glamorous, humble beginning. I've been investing for the last 10 years, but the first five years I focused only on angel investing. In other words, I would invest time or money in private tech startups with a goal in mind to sell that tech startup for a 10x multiple. Needless to say, that's a lot easier said than done. In fact, I never achieved that result. I actually lost money 90% of the time. After five years of consistent losses, I had to make a change. What I was doing wasn't working. Since I couldn't find success as an angel investor in the private market, I took a step back and turned my attention to the public market, but I took a different approach. See, I knew billionaire investors did not guess their way to the accumulation of massive wealth. They don't use emotions, feelings, and beliefs. They use logic, and the foundation of logic is math. This is when I decided to read as many boring investment books as I could to see if I could understand that math. See, publicly traded companies have historical data you can use to calculate the trajectory of a business. I applied my software engineering background to create an algorithm and within the same year, I achieved a 15% return compared to the market average of 6%. I then went on to refine the algorithm and achieve returns ranging between 15% In 50% over the next few years. Then things got really interesting. In the summer of 2019, I backtested ticker through the 2008 recession and in 2008, the S&P 500 went down 38% while ticker went up 24%. I then backtested ticker from 1999 through 2019 and ticker has proven to beat the market every year. The lowest return was 10% and the highest return was 96%. That is the moment when I decided I can't keep this algorithm for myself. I need to turn this into a platform to share with others. That's when I decided to create Ticker. If you're looking to make significantly higher returns in the market, Ticker is perfect for you. Go ahead and get signed up with a free trial. Visit Ticker.pro. All right, let's talk about the last subject, which is investing. So you consider yourself a self-directed investor. You do not hire financial advisor or wealth manager. So when did you start managing your own portfolio?
1: Mm. Well, I will say I started very young, again, in my early 20s. I was fortunate enough to be raised by a father who was an investor as a hobby. And so it was just kind of talk around the dinner table, you know, whatever his great score was for that week or that day or that month. Uh, You know, he was constantly talking about his, his wins. Uh, You know, I'm sure he had some losses too, (laughs) but uh, dad only shared the wins with us. Uh, And so he got me uh, started young. I was probably sophomore in college, maybe a junior in college where I made my first purchases. And I think I just bought Vanguard index 500 mutual fund. And, you know, I just kept plugging money away into that fund whenever I had extra cash or on a regular, um, eventually I did a regular deposit. Uh, And so I, over my lifetime so far, I've done a series of, you know, individual mutual fund purchases. And then I did individual stocks for a while. And I will say I have worked with financial planners at certain phases in my life, but um, I didn't, I, I got to the point where I Felt like I knew more than they did on some subjects and you know when I did a comparison of my returns on my own versus my returns with them uh, it was about the same or sometimes even better so right now sure. we just manage all of our own uh, portfolio and we have a combination of uh, mutual funds some, some CDs some bonds and then I have a separate fund that I call like my play portfolio through Charles Schwab, that I just manage individual stock picks. Uh, It's just my play money.
0: Sure. Let's talk about that a little bit. What's your strategy there with individual stocks?
1: Mm. What's my strategy? I am a buy and hold girl. Um, That's just worked for me over time. I buy what I know and what I use. Uh, for example, like I might see something that my teenage daughter is interested in. And, you know, I think, oh gosh, you know, like Apple is a great example. Like my daughter would never buy any other product other than Apple because, uh, you know, they got her young and they got her solidly and interested in that whole platform. So I have shares of Apple because I think her and her entire generation, that's all they're ever going to buy. Uh, so, you know, I go on that. First, you know, a company that I'm interested in, a company that I use, a company that I understand. uh, And then I always do that next level of, you know, research. I might try to look for um, recommendations. I listen to a lot of financial podcasts. And so if I hear of a company that comes up several times uh, on a recommended buy list, I'll dig a little deeper into that um, and then I try to do just a mix of. I am probably pretty heavy on technology in my particular portfolio, um, and certain sectors that I really like. Um, you know, the war on cash is one that I'm interested sure. in. So I've got a lot of PayPal and Visa and Square and you know stocks like that. But for the most part, I try to spread it out.
0: It sounds like you you're following one of the rules, is which is you should only invest in what you know. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're investing heavily into tech, the tech sector, which is, I say that's a great idea because tech is growing like crazy, especially right now. I mean, a lot of stocks are already hitting highs even through this COVID-19 crisis.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, can you give us some of the stocks that have performed well over the last year? You mentioned Apple. Apple's yeah. done okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, let's see. I just looked at it a couple of days ago, and I'd say uh, PayPal is one of my strongest holdings. Um, Amazon, of course, has just, I've had that one for a while now, and it's been just on a bullish run and doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. Um, you know, a lot of those other war on cash type holdings like Square, um the other holdings that I have, I probably only have, you know, 20, 22 stocks. I mean, I don't have a huge portfolio. It just becomes way unwieldy. Um, but I've got uh, like Starbucks has done pretty well for me. A um, couple of new ones I've added, like Lululemon is one that I, again, saw my daughter uh, buying these pants like crazy. And every teenage girl in the high school has three, four pairs of these pants. And, you know, again, I looked into the financials and I thought, oh, that's one I want to own. Uh, so a couple of those, uh, I've got Walmart and um, a couple other tech stocks, Cisco and I don't know, I'd have to pull up the whole portfolio to remember all of them, but uh, the best performers are probably consistently Amazon and those, uh, the, like the Visa, Square, PayPal, those stocks.
0: hmm Excellent portfolio, by the way. Um, and it sounds like you're staying pretty focused here because if you own too many stocks, you're essentially creating your own index fund and your returns right. will be mm-hmm. limited. So, mm-hmm. yeah, keep compounding into what you have. That's excellent. Quick comment on Lulu. That was a surprising stock for me as well. Looked at the history, five years, no debt, mm-hmm. um, impressive right. balance sheet. Yeah, 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 right. I like that's I like great
1: the with cash. <laughs>
0: right, exactly. Especially like times right now, they're oh, yeah. outperforming. Right. Yeah, for sure. So let's get into the final part of our interview. It's called the rapid fire round. Oh, okay. What I'd like to do is go through a series of questions if you could answer each in 15 seconds or less.
1: Oh, boy. Oh, no pressure, Sean. Let's try Here we
0: go. Favorite podcast?
1: Oh, uh, Motley Fool Money with Chris Hill.
0: Love it. That's my favorite as well. Recent book you would recommend?
1: I just finished Brene Brown, Daring Greatly which I'm just a big, huge fan of Brene Brown. She talks a lot about shame and vulnerability and how to be a great leader. So that's the one I just finished that I would recommend.
0: All right. Favorite movie.
1: Uh, this is 40. Uh, it's one. It's a movie that not a whole lot of people know, but uh, you know, we just got through the teenage years and my husband and I just, whenever we needed a good barry, barrel laugh, we'd throw that one on. Uh, it's on the it's DVR all the time. Love it. Yep.
0: Love it. Yeah. Favorite food.
1: Favorite food, Mexican, hands down. Hot and spicy, the better.
0: There you go. How many hours do you work per week?
1: Um, Depends. Right now, I'm doing a lot of work for the COVID stuff. So I'm doing, you know, 30 to 40. Um, But prior to COVID, I had some weeks where I was down to 10, 15 hours a week. You know, being the CEO right now, I delegate a lot of stuff out. And so my job is really only biz dev and you know, when we're at capacity with, you know, what we can handle, there's not a whole lot of, you know, biz, I'm always doing biz dev, but there's less than uh, normal. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can get down to 10, 15 hours sometimes.
0: That's proof. You definitely have some great systems in place. Yep. Props to you. All right. How many hours of sleep do you get each night?
1: Oh, I'm a great sleeper, Sean. I get eight to nine hours.
0: Good for you. All right. Last question. If you could go back in time to give your younger self advice, what age would you visit and what would you say?
1: Oh, I would go back to my early 30s and say something like, oh, gosh, Leanne, you see all those houses all around you that are still hundred and hundred and fifteen thousand dollars or. Save more, go without more to scrape up the down payment to be able to buy up those properties because later on, you know, 15, 20 years from now, they're all going to be worth 600,000 and you'll be you'll be there faster. So I just would have bought a heck of a lot more real estate when I was
0: (laughs) (laughs) smart advice. All right. That's a wrap, folks. So where can they reach you, Leanne?
1: Oh, Sean, let's see. My website is uh, www.stitchcraftmarketing.com. Uh, that's probably the best place. You can find us on socials there uh, and email contacts if you so want to reach out.
0: Sounds good. I'll have it listed in the show notes. Well, thank you, Leanne.
1: Thanks, Sean. That was fun.
0: Thanks for listening to the Payback Time podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please provide a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. If you'd like to hear an interview from someone specific, please make a comment on the Payback Time Facebook page. If you're interested in becoming an affiliate and earning 30% reoccurring commission for simply sharing Ticker, visit ticker.pro slash affiliates. Remember, this show is for entertainment purposes only. If you heard any stock mentioned on this podcast episode, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is copyright protected by payback time. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.